Well, as we begin this morning, we start our introduction, or I start our introduction with a conclusion of the book of 2 Peter. So for some who are newer here, never knew we got started, never knew we needed a, a conclusion, I will, for the sake of coherence, weave in and throughout what we talk about here an overview of the book. We started, or I, I started, this is the 12th message in the book of Second Peter. I started almost exactly three years ago in October of 2019. And have things changed in the last three years? I thought about listing them all, and then I thought, you know, not really. What has happened? What has the world or world governments done? What have people done that have really shifted eternity? Nothing. God is still God. Christ is still our risen Lord. His word is still eternal. These things that we needed before, nothing has changed. We are still in need of that same rescue, that same Christ. But as we come to this passage, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, in this conclusion, it reads a little different than the rest of the letter. It reads in sort of a bullet point fashion. And it was tempting as I begin laying these out and thinking about just a single statement. I had so much that I wanted to say, but I realized that as I was preparing, it's tempting to write a full sermon based on the one sentence. And then I realized, well, yeah, I already did. As a summary, we had previously had the close-up, the close scrutiny as we went through those first 11 messages. You're able to get up close to see differences in words, sentence structures. You'd have historical references, local phenomena that were going on, nuances that don't really jump off the page because you can go through slow and systematically and break these things down. But you get to the conclusion, and it is Peter summarizing what he has said. As he signs off, so this is his last communication, he wants to communicate these main points for everything that he has been saying throughout his letter. And so this morning, we get somewhat of a bird's eye view. We get to back up some. The benefit here is that we see more of the macro themes, the flow of his thought, where he had put up before us the real, which is one message, and then the false, which is another. Whenever we back up, we see those side by side, and we can see them contrasted against one another. So there's a great benefit to it. And we've all been encouraged to take our time in the Scripture, not just break it down sentence by sentence or section by section, but to read the entire letter at once that we would see some of these themes that don't show up if we were to have a close scrutiny. So as part of a review, this letter, Second Peter, it's written to the same group as First Peter 1.1. 1, 1. And so the group that he writes to there, he says, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And those regions are helpful whenever we look and see, whenever in our passage he's talking about what Paul had written to them, we can see that specifically into this region include the cities of Ephesus, Colossae, and also the 
the churches in Galatia. And so that's helpful for us because we can see, as Peter says, there are things hard to understand. He was not kidding. But the, the theme of the expressed reason that Peter writes this letter, Second Peter, is found in chapter 1, verse 12. In a shorthand of it, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So that's his goal. He's, he's not saying I'm bringing to you anything new, but the things that you've heard need to be stirred up. And I think that I, I may be alone in this, but I need the reminders to do the things that I already know. It, I mean, I, I don't deny that I'm dull and lazy and not yet as I hope to be, but I'm seeing some nods here that, yeah, I need, I, I need reminders for not even the things that are, are in the Word. I need reminders at noon to do the things that I set my day upon. That I prayed to the Lord, Lord, sow this in me, grow my heart. At noon, can you even reproduce what you read in the morning? No, we are a, a fallen creature that needs reminders. And so Peter is giving reminders throughout this. One of the main themes that he puts out there is the evidence of our salvation. And that's a majority of chapter 1. And so he holds that up. What does salvation look like? What does it produce? What are the evidences that would say that the salvation you have, the election is sure and confident? What, where do you place your confidence in it? So while we were close up in a scrutiny of that, he also in chapter 2 held up the false teachers. Because Peter is communicating. He's a saint who is signing off. Last communication. He's no longer going to be around to defend, to support, to encourage, to teach the saints. And he knows that they'll be under attack. And have those attacks stopped? No. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And that is a, a present reality. It did not stop after the first century. So, as he signs off, we get to his final uh, distillation, breaking this down into what I find here to be three main thoughts. So let's look at this passage, starting in verse 14. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. We thank You for this Word, this divine revealing of something, Lord, that it would be impossible for us as creatures, fallen creatures, to comprehend. But it required you to come near or for you to manifest yourself to us. To infuse us, Lord, with with this spirit to bring us to life that we might see and understand. Lord, grow us in that understanding this morning. These are the, we, we have the final words of Peter. Lord, may we not take these things lightly. But this is a saint who loves us, even now here in 2022, that he would love us and want to communicate these things to us. Lord, we see that this is from you, through him. So Lord, may we take it as a word from you. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. I want to summarize this summary in this way, and these are kind of our three points. You can see them throughout verses 14 to 18, but it's as if Peter is saying this. Because of the unchangeable promises of God in which he does not change, we must. And I'm not telling you anything different than what the Apostle Paul said. There are those who will distort the Scriptures, so you've been warned not to be led astray. However, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in order to give glory or to give God the glory due him. So those three those three thoughts there are a summary of the summary. That's my summary of his summary. But let's break it down here and, and look at these three in order. So as he starts, because of the unchangeable promises of God, in which God does not change, we must. In verse 14, it starts out with therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? But it's a connection. That was an old joke, wasn't it? What's the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore is therefore. Therefore. There was an indicative. There was something true. Something that we needed to know that now flows into an imperative. He's referring specifically to chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And now he's saying, therefore, So all that has been said that is true, that is fixed, that is immovable, the promises of God found in the character of God does not change. Christ is immutable. We are mutable. We are to be changed. And so as he says here, the while we are waiting for these, He's specifically referring to what we found in chapter 3, verse 7, the the day of the Lord, that event in which God judges. That being his his main point that he he, structures the entire chapter 3, or the final portion of his letter around, is that God has fixed a day in which he is going to judge the earth. And he sealed it with a promise. It is not going to change. 
We have in verse 7, he says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. And there will never be a time that this changes. There will never be a time in which God says, Okay, I am not going to judge. These are the fixed promises, the indicatives, the things that are true, immovable. In Acts 17.31, it's recorded from, uh, from Paul. He says that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He gave the promise and then he sealed it. He gave full assurance this is going to happen. And so Paul uses this, one, to comfort believers. How could this be a comfort to believers that there will be a judgment? But that believers are comforted by this, that sin will not escape God. He will judge. The evil that has been done, the evil that you see that you think might be getting, some may be getting away with, do they get away with it? No. It's a comfort for us to know that our God sees and our God is active. He is going to do something about it. But is that also a warning? And he uses it as a warning. As he continues there in verse 14, it's a warning to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So if God is going to punish wickedness, make every effort to therefore be blameless, lest you be one of those that receives the judgment. We're not going to change God's mind on this, nor would we want to. This is within the character of God. He is a righteous judge. He is just. I, I was thinking of a good illustration to give this comparison on what are the true immovable indicatives of God. And I was... As Barry knows, this week I had a lot of time to, uh, to listen to different historical uh, podcasts. And I listened to one about a man named Glenn Curtis. Anyone heard of Glenn Curtis? That's how uh, he, the, the history is written by the victors. This was uh, an inventor in the early 1900s. He was a bicycle mechanic. But he began tinkering with something known as the internal combustion engine. You can see where this is going. So, bicycle mechanic now with a motor, what would any self-respecting man do if he had a garage with bicycles and motors? But he would combine the two. But the, the aspect of, of Mr. Curtis's invention was that in order to win these races that he was entering because now he's, he built a motorized bicycle. He made the motors very light. That was the key to it. So he had an advantage over his competitors. But another inventor came along and said, and this is how guys do it, you know, if you put a propeller on that thing, we could hook that to that their glider, and we could fly. And as any self-respecting man would do, he would strap that light motor that he didn't realize could, be, could have other uses. He strapped it to this man's 
glider to give it forward propulsion. The amazing part is that now 110, 120 years later, the very first invention that Glenn Curtis had included the cockpit. That was his, his first design, the cockpit, hand controls, landing gear, the tripod, where you have the wheel up front and the two made out of his bicycle shop. We still have all of these. But the key was, if you look on the wings, there's those, they're called louvers on the back, and they rise up and down. That is what gets the airplane up. It's also what slows it down. It's what keeps it straight. And based on how they lift those with the hand controls, it gives it steering, and it can also lift. But throughout all of Mr. Curtis's story, out of all of his calculations, what do you suppose he had to account for in every aspect of his calculations? I'll ask it a, a, a second way. Once those failed, uh, his initial designs failed, in all subsequent calculations, what do you suppose he had to account for? You can say it. Each design, each new innovation, the change, what do we make the, the fabric out of? Because we need this thing to be light because he had to always account for gravity, wind resistance, friction. But there was, no matter how he changed what he wanted or how he needed this invention to go, so how he might build on this, the constant was that he always had to account for the things that were unchangeable, immovable, true, and fixed. Mr. Curtis did not go out and make an agreement with gravity that it would be less today so that his airplane could fly. Nor did he find areas of the world where gravity is less over here than it is over here. He didn't build an anti-gravity machine or an Iron Man suit he had to deal with those fixed realities. Gravity was the indicative, so to speak, the fixed, unchanging, constant, reliable, immovable reality. Therefore, he had to live accordingly. And Peter is saying, even as John said in chapter 318 of John's Gospel, whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This indicative that God will judge and that the wrath of God remains on sinners. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And in this final communication, Peter saying sinners must change. The truth of God fixed, immovable. He's not going to change that. He's not going to alter his promises. But verse 15 of our passage, God is not delight. He's not quick to do this. Verse 15 is actually a, a follow-up of verse 9 of chapter 3, that God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As Ezekiel in chapter 33 
Verse 11 said, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? God cannot go against his righteousness, his justice. Is he just going to let things slide? No. And Peter is saying, now live accordingly. Minister accordingly. Warn accordingly. That people would know that these things are fixed. And that they then would turn. And for the sake of our speed, obviously I would love to go further on in that. I would say refer back to the last two messages in chapter 3 that elaborate on that in the detail. But remember, I've backed up a little bit here. So as Peter says this, that these things are true, immovable, he then says, and there's two veins to his next point, he says, I'm not telling you anything different than what the Apostle Paul said. There are those who will distort the Scriptures, so you have been warned. And he specifically says it in verse 15, this part B of that through 17. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. This is not a mind-blowing statement. Peter is presenting this as self-evident, that Paul would be saying the same thing as Peter. In Galatians chapter 1 and also in Chapter 2, who inspected Paul's gospel? Peter. Whenever Paul, who had the gospel, came, he put it before the elders. He put it before the apostles. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, they said they extended the right hand of fellowship. They said, yes, this is the gospel. So it's, it should be no surprise to us that the Bible has one message. And what is that one singular message? but God's restoration of His creation through salvation found in Christ. So it, Peter's not given us anything out of this world. He's saying, Paul has also written of this. But we have these two veins that, that kind of branch out here. This affirmation in verse 16 that Scripture does indeed include things that are difficult to understand. Then we'll talk about how the enemies handle that. But this Word of God, it says that things are hard to understand, which is understandable. As I said, consider the letters written into this area. From Paul into the cities of Colossae, we get the letter to the Colossian church, to Ephesus, the Ephesian church in the region of Galatia, which was harder to physically get to, and so you had smaller churches, and it, was, it would be a circulated letter. But Peter says these things are hard to understand. Consider what the Galatians are sitting there reading. In Galatians 1, verse 12, they have a letter from Paul that says, For I did not receive it, being the gospel, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So they have never run across this in its full revelation. Do you think that would be hard to understand? Paul literally saying, I am, I am the first one, or I, I am the one to whom the stewardship has been given to reveal things 
that have been, as we'll see, hidden for ages. So they, they did not already have this in their, their understanding. Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 25 to 27, Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have mystery used four times in Colossians. The word mystery also seven times in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 3 to 5, they have a letter from the apostle that says this, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Hidden for the ages. Think of the saints who came before to whom this was hidden from. Abraham, Moses, David, the Old Testament prophets, Solomon, in all of his wisdom and reason, things hidden from him. Why? So that it would be revealed in Christ. But there's the other aspect here that the, the apostles, it, this comes up whenever people look at this verse here. As, as he concludes there in verse 16, where he says, as they do the other scriptures. This idea that, did the apostles know they were writing the scriptures? Well, look back here at Colossians 1, whenever he says, to make the word of God fully known. Did the apostles know they were writing scripture? They were given a stewardship and they were those to whom it was fully revealed. And Peter, even in, in our letter here, second Peter chapter one, verse 19 to 21 he doesn't shy away from that. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're talking about the apostles and the prophets. Well, who were the apostles but themselves? This full revelation that they then wrote it down and communicated it, it's not as though the Word of God just showed up. Like the apostle looks over and on the nightstand in the morning, he's like, well, that's my handwriting, as though he wrote it in a trance. Nor was it that he set out to do it on his own. You know what? There's something about that guy that aggravates me. I'm going to write him scripture. Well, they didn't have that ability. Nor was everything they wrote scripture. Or else we would have all of that, grocery lists included. But they didn't present this as something like they were confused as... The, well, I, I don't, I mean, I wrote the letter. I, I'm not sure. We'll see what, we'll see how history judges this. No, they were bold. These are the things of God revealed to us by Christ, now through the Spirit. And as we write these things to very real, very relevant circumstances, to local churches, revealing Christ and how Christ is to be known and then applied to these situations, 
the indicatives now flowing into the imperatives, did they know that they were writing Scripture? Yes, these were men faithful stewards. They were not confused. But that includes some things that are hard to understand. I wanted to just take a moment here for for those who, in me talking back and forth with people and in preparing a message, I, I just ask, what are some of the thoughts you might have from a passage like this? And I, I was able to capture someone's questions in this way. As they read this, they said, well, okay, so it's hard to understand, but doesn't the Holy Spirit help us? So then it, is it easy then? So, so, so which one is it here? It's hard to understand, but I have the Spirit, so that should be easy. But what, what does it mean if it's still difficult? In wrestling through these thoughts, whenever the Word of God comes to them, a believing saint, and says these things are hard to understand, how am I to then understand that? But this word here, hard to understand, it means it's intellectually difficult to capture the true sense of it, to really wrap your mind around it so that you then have a mastery of it. There are things that are difficult to fully wrap your mind around. It does not say that the scriptures are impossible, but that they're hard. So I want to give encouragement to that person in this way, is that no one gets to the point where the scriptures are comprehensively easy to understand. I mean, we are dealing with, as Paul said, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Psalm 145, 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And that that thought comes, you could see the wrestling there. Is it easy? Is it hard? What does that mean? What does not mean that you may be an unbeliever, you're not left behind, you're not whatever your flesh tells you you are. But the deeper things of Christ are in fact deeper. And how do you get to the deeper things but to pursue the deeper things? But can you ever reach deeper things? Yes, but then aren't there deeper things? I like a, a short quote from uh, Robert Murray McShane. He said, I can see the depths of God, but I cannot reach them. No matter how long you walk in the faith, there are things now, and I, I remember a conversation I had where I was in the role of counselee I don't play that role often, so you're getting a special story here. And there were two other guys talking, but I, I was in that role. And whatever I had said, they, their question was, I want you to read this in Romans chapter 7. So I read it, and they said, what does that mean? And I gave a response to what I thought was a faithful understanding of this passage. And man A looks at man B and says, he doesn't understand it, does he? And my pride was wounded. It's healed up nicely, unfortunately. But I I look over here and he says, no, he doesn't. And you're sitting there thinking, but I I have put time in on this. I, I thought I understood. 
But have I fully wrapped my mind around what it means to understand this scripture? And I, I have a brother coming to me saying, no, not yet. Go further. Go further. Keep pursuing. And that's where we see Peter close whenever he says, grow, grow in the grace. None of you are confident to sit here today and say, I understand these things fully. So grow, grow. And we see what that keeps us from. But I I do want to recognize for those who are in that position of, of things hard to understand, I put out four reasons why I think our the scriptures are generally hard to understand or remain hard to understand. One is because by its own admission, it is hard to understand, as I've mentioned. But two, the scriptures are going to remain hard to understand or passages hard to understand if your reading of the scripture is not joined with faith that works out in action. James 1, uh, 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only comma, deceiving yourselves. Those who would read the word, and it's not met with actual outworking. It is, there's reason from the mind of God coming, but it's not reason alone. It must be met with faith that works these things out. And for those who may live in fear, they're, they're trying to reason through and find the rationale. And it's no, you must go forward. The scriptures will come alive as they are met with faith. Another reason is that they would read this law of grace as though it's a law of works. They would see they don't see Christ having been having fulfilling these, and they they view all of Christ's work as something they would have to do. It makes it very difficult. You're reading a list of commands on how to be perfect, and they don't understand. A fourth way is that many are unaccustomed to spending structured time in the scriptures. You see this from a lot of uh, contemporary Christian church life. You know, there's a steady diet of, of Isaiah 40, 31. You got to back that up with some Jeremiah 29, 11 and round it off with Philippians 4, 13. And that's your whole dose of scripture and and that's it you don't stray from these kind of inspirational or or as though it's a potion as though it's going to have some mystical use no these things will remain difficult if that's how you pursue the scripture but it is the scriptures are going to be hard but as you pursue them the things that were once hard are now in reach but will you then, once you get to that place that it's in reach, the things that you could never see, now you see that those are far off. Is that your experience, Randy? I get, an, I get the wide eyes at the yes. Yes, very much. And Peter's point here is this, is that yes, there are difficult things to understand. Nothing new. But this is where it goes into this other vein because he, he, his focus now is on warning of those who will take what is difficult and twist it. This word twist here, in the Greek, it means to cause torture, to pervert something. 
The American Standard Version uses the word rest, spelled with a W, W-R-E-S-T. Whenever something is, whenever you have the word rest, what's, what's a word that we have that might be close to that? If you were to, to wrestle, okay. To rest something, to rest, this is literally to torture, pervert, to put into the racks where it was a torture machine that you would actually hook the one you're torturing into. And as you crank this, it would pull them out of joint. It was a torture technique. And this in, as Peter says here, they twist it to their own destruction. This in the hands of the false teachers, the heretics, the greedy, the blasphemers, those who are bold and willful, irrational animals and creatures of instinct, as he said in chapter 2. This is their approach to the Scripture. If, I mean, if you torture Scripture enough, it'll say whatever you want. And you see this today all over the place. The Scriptures are used to justify... I mean, you, you could find a, a preacher to greenlight anything, couldn't you? You just give them enough time and they will distort the word of God because they are going to take it out of context, out of the proper hermeneutics. They're going to dress it down and dress it up new, but it's all towards the aim. As chapter two says about them, that they are in the lust of defiling passion and they despise authority. They don't just avoid authority. They don't just not like it. They despise authority. And this is their approach to pervert it. But the insidious part are, who are the people in this day and age that are perverting Scripture? It's, it's not the local media. I mean, they, they just don't even touch it. There are some politicians. I, I've seen them put their blasphemy on billboards around the country. But where is this locationally? The false teachers are in the, in the church. I read an article years ago, went back to find it from Pastor Tim Challies. He listed seven false teachers, the, the, the kind of the flavor of them, and he had uh, some good supporting scripture for each one of these. I could send it if, if this piques your interest. But he said some are in the vein of the heretic, the charlatan, the prophet, the abuser, the divider, the ear tickler, the speculator. Many different forms and fashions that it would come. But this was his conclusion. He said Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full-out frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. His tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. And we are all nodding because we see this at work, destroying churches, destroying individuals, destroying lives. And as Peter put it in his letter, in chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, he said, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. 
They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. This through line with which everything that Peter says, this is how you'll know them. They engage in the lust of defiling passions. So there is obvious sin and despise authority. And we see that preached in the most elegant way from many respected institutions on how, as a response to what we don't like about the darkness, are to be those who would then therefore despise authority. We're not to be those. We should not be following any man who would present the word of God in such a way. Peter says, verse 17, Therefore, so here's another indicative flowing into the imperative. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. When that comes, there's two paths. We can either be those who are carried away whenever that false teaching, you turn on the channel, here's the false teaching. You're talking to somebody and they have a new perspective. They have this new doctrine that you haven't heard before. You have the chance to, if you don't take care, follow that error in lawless way. Or can God use this to advantage in your life? How could the, the attack of the false teachers grow you, strengthen you, but that you would affirm his authority in his word in your life? That we would, as he says here, take care. This word means to shun, to flee from, to observe for oneself something to escape from. To escape from it. It's for us to affirm God's authority in our lives, not to be carried away because who is our shepherd? The great shepherd. God is our shepherd and his word is enough for us. We do not need a new one, especially as the darkness closes in. There's this wrestling. Ah, it's starting to creep into the things that I'm really holding dear. You know, I'm hearing about this new crypto thing. What about all these... Uh, profile or your portfolio I have set up. What about my, oh, this retirement? And I talked to people like that. Talked to a guy a week ago. He lost, I think he said 60% of his portfolio in his retirement over the last two years. And I talked to him. But the key is that this man of God was still joyful. Far more, I put me to shame in his joyfulness. His hope, his strong tower was not a bank account. But I, I actually, whenever I had preached through Second Peter chapter 2 afterwards, somebody had come up to me here and they, kind of predictable. He said, I, I did hear one of these false teachers here locally. He was presenting his false doctrine. And I went up to him afterwards and I, I told him about it. I, I rebuked him. And to, in, in this man's surprise, he said, he didn't even hear a word I said. And my response was, oh, you don't say. He despises the authority. And here you come with that authority. You mean he didn't you know, drop down to his knees and repent there? No. No, despises authority. It's for us to escape them, not to try to do battle with them. 
But this is predictable in our day and age, this torture. As the world brings its warped ideology, though for some, resistance may initially be presented, but those who are unstable and ignorant, as Peter says, they sit down at their study, they'll open up the Bible, and they will launch into a full-fledged scale uh, jujitsu deathmatch, gouging eyes, biting ears, all of that, violate every rule that you might know for interpretation until, voila, look, here it is. Permission to do the very things that I wanted to do at the outset. Or might give them permission to go attack and firebomb the the person for doing it. But whenever you torture it enough and you change it, well, you know, this word, it kind of means this over here. And if if you add it, And it's all this torture technique until what is the plain reading of Scripture is no longer plain. Yeah, it's not quite that. But you just take that step back and look, and it all goes right towards them indulging the flesh and despising authority. It's, I mean, though Satan is clever, his ways have not changed. We're not ignorant to these things. But I bring these as our reminder as we go into this third part here about grace, as we have this reminder, because for some of us, we, we know who the false teacher is. Some have come out of that. I've been in churches that you hear false teaching, and you come to a church that preaches the true word of God and its rest. But is there anything static in this world that's going to stay the same? I mean, are we all staying the same age? Is it, is it always going to be like this? Or is the Lord going to, in order for us to have that good, to affirm his authority, going to bring you false teachings? As you gave testimony to early this morning, Barry, you go out into the world in these false teachings. Those who claim to be Christian and you think you labor alongside come with something that is twisted, tortured to death. It's this mangled mess of understanding and voila, it provides them permission to indulge the flesh. This is all around us, and we must be ready because we, we cannot say because of our circumstances we have overcome this warning from Scripture. So as Peter concludes this, the last thought, the last sentence he would write to us and to those following is verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. There's a contrast here. It starts with that word, but. Peter has been saying there's a fixed day in which God will judge. The false teachers will come to seek to draw you away, but you've been warned beforehand. We've all been warned. And now he turns to this very heartfelt Beloved communication. This is what the apostle would say to you personally. Peter, this this man sufficiently humbled. His whole letter, and it, it goes back to this very simple picture. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, this imagery shows up. In as the prophet writes, recording the words of the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 16, he says, Thus says the Lord, 
Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. This ancient path, the very things you knew from the beginning. I added Proverbs 4.27, it says, Do not swerve to the left or the right. Turn your foot away from evil. But the very things that we need to grow in, it's not something that it's like, hey, you know what? The Lord has brought us this far now for the, the remainder of time, for the real deep things, the real hard things. We need something new. This ancient path that goes all the way back to the beginning, we grow in that. We remain in that. We don't stray. But I think that's a, a good imagery just as, as you consider the, the highway of the world, this, this superstructure that everybody wants to follow as though this is the easy way out of your problems. You know, if you want to, however the worlds and the world governments are going, the solution now, invest in this. You know, the, um, start prepping this way for the, for the coming disaster or uh, transfer all of this wealth over here and this will all pay off and it'll all be saved and but you have to buy this product first. And none of those are going to satisfy your soul if you are the Lord's. The Lord is a jealous God who wants your soul to rest in Him. So we don't swerve, but we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And this grow in grace, this soil that you're planted in, These are the means by which God has set before us. This word grow, this present active, another imperative, meaning that present, so you need to do it now. It's active, not passive, so it requires effort. And it is an imperative, which means it's based on. It flows out of those immovable promises of God. So what does it mean to grow in the grace a uh, quote from A.W. Pink, he said, The grace of God is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the free giving of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and the unworthy. In, as a contrast, his mercy is the inclination of God, a readiness to have pity, to relieve min, misery. And grace is that acting out, the acting upon His goodness and mercy. So there are miraculous manifestations of grace. Those where He would take somebody dead and bring them to life. Is that by means of works? No, it is by means of grace. By grace you have been saved. It is not of works, so you might not boast. But we can't walk in a daily salvation as though we're going to be saved day after day. There, there are false teachings that would require you to become saved after uh, sin. But what, what Peter is saying by grow in the grace, these regular, ordinary means of grace. Titus chapter 2, he said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, so this bringing to life, training us to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So this grace of God brings us to life, restrains us, it trains us, it moves us 
there's actually the, where would we go to get training in, in righteousness? Training to live, to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives. Where would you go? The Word of God. But that's not some esoteric, we read it and then we just, you know, it just finds a way into us. But whenever it's growing grace, we need to read, we need to study, we need to understand, we need to comprehend these things. And that, by the means of doing that, we are being changed. So whenever I say the means of grace, it's those that are available at all times to those who are alive in Christ, by which we grow in Christ's likeness. The word of God preached, the word of God read, those are the means by which God changes you from one degree of glory to another. As Acts 20, 32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the place where God freely reveals himself to us. This, as we behold the face of the Lord, we are being transformed, right? And as we, this ancient path of of putting yourself before the Lord, of pursuing him in his word, this is the process by which we grow in grace and the knowledge of God. Another is prayer. As Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We bring him our prayer. It is this free favor of, of God that he would listen and then act upon the things that we bring him according to his will. The third are the ordinances, the testimony and the communion. This is the, the common union the, the testimony we give in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, it represents this common union we all have here, that we are united in Christ. It is the, the co-union, the communion, of all of us growing together. Our sanctification, this process, is a grace by which He transforms us. But we must remain in it. And for some who this part of the application is not, not very impressive, you're like, well, yeah, I, I knew that. Right. And I'm giving you a reminder to remain in that because the temptation is going to be to try to find some other way. I've heard about this new procedure, this new teaching, this new seminar, this new medication, whatever it may be. Maybe I need that. Exhaust the riches of God first. When you're done with the Word of God and it has all become easy and you've accomplished that, then move on to something else. That's tongue-in-cheek. So don't actually think that I'm, <laughs> that I'm saying that you can exhaust. But I would have you to consider the, the inverse, the neglecting of the grace of God. If being in the Word of God, the, the Bible would be the means by which he communicates himself to us. If you're not in the Bible, if you're not daily in the Word, what does that communicate to God or about yourself other than that God speaks, but I don't listen? 
He can say it, but I will avoid the place by which I would hear that. I mean, Instagram, Netflix, Facebook, they speak and I listen. Oh, I listen. But to the place that God speaks, I don't. Without prayer, you, you would essentially be communicating this, I never speak to God. If we neglect these graces, that He doesn't speak, or He speaks, but I don't listen and I never talk, neglecting the communion, the place where God is active in His people, I'd rather be somewhere else. It's as though our sanctification is saying, I am, I am good enough. I am already fit for heaven. I need no more of this. But not to be understood, these means of grace are not, if you do them, then you get an, an abundance of grace. So then you can use that up like it's like some kind of currency. It does not confer grace upon us. In which, uh, And there are those who would believe that if you store up grace, then you can sin because grace is more. But grace always remains grace, and the grace and knowledge of God are inseparable. To know Him is to know His grace because that is His self-revelation. And so these are the final words that the Apostle writes to us. This command of God to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And faithful Christians find this growth to be life itself. It's not burdensome. But at times, the human heart can desire godliness to be more difficult. It has to be harder than this, right? It can't be so easy. I've sat in much counseling where it has to be harder than this. And that's simply because man wants to be his own authority. He wants to have a problem that God cannot solve. He wants to live life as close to the margins as possible, but that is not living or growing in grace. We are to simply walk in this, this ancient path and not swerve. So as Peter signs off in his final instructions, he says, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So how do you glorify God? But to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that our hearts would rejoice that you've made a way for us to approach your throne of grace. Once your enemies, Lord, you have intervened, we were those who would rather desire and twist these things in our own hate of your authority. But Lord, it is all a work of you that you would change us from an enemy to a friend. And we thank you for that, Lord. As this time in our world, we perceive this to be getting darker, that no one here would find a need to swerve, to find a new path. But to those, Lord, who have the word of God ministered to them, that they would not be frustrated but these are the very things that they need to hear. They need to hear from their God. 
Lord, bless us. And I thank you for my time here in this letter of, of Second Peter. What wonderful grace you've poured out through a study of your word. And Lord, may you use this to bless your saints, Lord. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior Christ. Amen.